0: The latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Transitions, Retire in Place Programs, and Termination. It's a top attorney's perspective and a conversation with Tom Lewis, certified civil trial attorney at Stevens and Lee. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Podcast is available on our website, diamond consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful. If you'd give the show a review, your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who could benefit from the series, please feel free to share it widely. There's no doubt that changing firms or models is a complex process. And even the thought of doing so often brings an advisor to his knees with concerns over everything from portability to protocol and all that lies in between. Yet, it's the contractual obligations an advisor may have to his firm that drives the most anxiety, and rightfully so. Attorneys tell us they're getting an avalanche of outreach from advisors wanting to make sure that their employment agreements don't bind them further to their firm. It's an issue we're seeing more and more of in recent years as the wirehouses work harder to retain their top talent. Take, for example, retire in place programs, also known as succession or sunset programs. Almost every major firm has its own version, which allows senior advisors to retire, transfer their business to the next gen, and monetize in place. These programs, such as Merrill's CTP, UBS Alpha, and Morgan Stanley's FFAP, can be compelling for a senior advisor who has every intention of retiring from his firm and being rewarded for their life's work. Yet many advisors are finding that there are clauses and restrictions that further tie them and their next gen to the firm, limiting any optionality for now and in the future. Often, they're finding out too late. That is, once they've signed on the dotted line. And in a hypervigilant compliance environment, advisors are feeling increasingly vulnerable and worried about possible termination. So to really understand the landmines with respect to advisor transitions, the pros and cons of retire-in-place programs for senior and next-gen advisors, and the real truth about terminations... I've invited Tom Lewis, a board-certified civil trial attorney at Stevens & Lee, based in Princeton, New Jersey, to join us. Tom specializes in employment litigation and advisor transitions and has firsthand knowledge of the ins and outs of advisor transitions, retire-in-place programs, and termination, all hot topics in today's evolved wealth management landscape. We'll discuss all that, Plus, get his professional perspective on best practices to consider if you're planning a move. So let's get to it. Tom, I'm so grateful for your time today.
1: Mindy, good morning. Hope you're doing well.
0: I am. Thank you. Let's get to it. Let's start at the beginning, Tom. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the firm you work for.
1: Sure. Thanks, Mindy. I am actually an attorney sitting in a private law firm by the name of Stevens and Lee in Princeton, New Jersey. And what we do, I have a team of attorneys that work with me and we do broker recruiting work across the United States. And what we typically would do is we'll either represent the broker dealer with onboarding of teams or advisors, or we'll actually represent the advisor team itself going to a new firm. And we basically help them because as you might imagine, there's a lot of issues along the way. And our job is to make it a seamless transition for them.
0: Let's focus a little on the work you do for individual clients, the advisors in transition. Tell us a little bit about that work specifically.
1: Absolutely. So what we would typically do is we would get involved with the team. We would be contacted by a team that's thinking about making a move. And oftentimes, Mindy, that team may have a couple different firms that it's in talks with to make a decision which firm is the best fit. So what we would initially do is we would basically survey the situation. We would determine what firm is the advisor currently at what firm is the advisor looking at and really what are the nuances with the transition is it a protocol transition is it a non-protocol transition are there restrictive agreements are there certain obligations that the team has is there garden leave for instance so we would take a look and based upon the experience we've had representing literally thousands of financial advisors we can sort of take a quick snapshot and make a determination what is the move going to look like and How complicated could it be or how easy could it be?
0: So I want to come back to the notion of a protocol move versus a non-protocol move. But for perspective, tell us a little bit about how much movement you're seeing. I mean, we've seen a ton of movement. 2020 represented probably more movement than we've ever seen in a year. And we're expecting even more of it this year. But what are you seeing from your perspective?
1: I couldn't agree more with you, Mindy. 2020, surprisingly, I think, had the highest velocity of moves that I'm aware of over the last 15 years or so. It was a phenomenal amount of transition moves. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But 2020 was awfully busy. And I think 2021, I think, is going to be just as busy.
0: So from your perspective, too, what do you think is driving it the most?
1: I think it's interesting. In early 2020, 2019, of course, was busy with transitions. 2020, early part of the year, started off busy. And then obviously in March or so with COVID, things changed dramatically. For a period of a couple weeks, there were not many transitions going on at all. Although there were a couple teams um, that I helped that left at the end of March, beginning of April. And frankly, I thought that was questionable when it happened, but it turned out to be a godsend for them because everything lined up perfectly. They were able to leave properly and the clients were able to come over. I think that because of the pandemic in 2020, a lot of advisors working from their home, a lot of advisors obviously solidified relationships with clients and made a decision that maybe they should look around and look for a better opportunity for themselves and a better opportunity for their clients. And I think as a result of that, with people for the most part working from their homes in 2020, it also gave the advisors flexibility to speak to professionals like yourself about what would be the options out there and what would be a good move for them. And it allowed freedom of discussion and frankly, for people to really have a new beginning and a new platform for themselves and for their clients.
0: Yeah. So there's no doubt we saw the same, that having the privacy to be at home and do due diligence without the walls having ears, having time to self-reflect absolutely drove a lot of it. But it's also, I think, that there was a lot of frustration Pre-pandemic. In other words, just because somebody was home and had privacy wouldn't be enough to make somebody who wasn't otherwise frustrated or otherwise motivated to make a move do so. It just made it easier to do so. So from our perspective, what I think drove a lot of it or drives a lot of it is the desire for more freedom, flexibility, and control. Do you see the same thing?
1: I couldn't agree more. It's amazing with a lot of the regulations and with a lot of the broker dealers as they're acting now. Most of these financial advisors, as you know, are entrepreneurs. They're building their own business and they need flexibility. And as a result of that, with We'll call it the tightening a little bit from a regulatory point of view. I think that the advisors are looking for more freedom and more flexibility. In other words, what the advisors are saying to the broker-dealers is, let us do our job. We've been very successful in the past, and right now you're making life difficult for us. And as a result, I think a lot of advisors have been looking around. I think it started in 2018, 2019, and certainly the velocity increased in 2020.
0: Yeah, same. From your perspective, Tom, what are the most common landmines that an advisor in transition needs to be aware of?
1: You know, it's interesting, Mindy. When I have initial discussions with advisors, most advisors are very concerned, number one, that their business is not going to get shut down because obviously they read the different posts that are out there on on different social media platforms or or on the internet. And obviously there's a lot of horror stories out there, but I can tell you the horror stories are really few and far between. For the most part, what most advisors don't understand is there really is a lot of ease in making the transition as long as they act and do the right thing. And by that, I mean, I think it would be foolish for the financial advisors to try to make a move to a firm, move their entire practice without getting professional assistance, because this is not what they do for a living and they don't know what the potential minefields are. If the team does get professional assistance, and that could be somebody who's had experience in the past, it could be a consultant, it could be a lawyer, it could be anybody who who actually has done this before, what professionals can do is help the financial advisor make the right move. What I tell all my financial advisors is that their reputation is critical and their reputation with their clients as well as their reputation with their prior firm and their reputation with the new firm. So when we make a move, We want to do it the right way. As I tell my clients, we want to take the high road. We don't want to cut corners. We don't want to make mistakes. We want to do it properly because our reputation, the advisor's reputation is critically important with the firm that they are leaving, as well as the firm that they're joining, as well as with their clients. And if you make a mistake, it gets expensive. And a lot of the mistakes can be avoided very easily.
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about protocol versus non-protocol moves. And I think from where I sit, a lot of people worry about how do you make a move without being able to get a sense of where your clients are at. And obviously the way you're able to handle a transition with respect to talking to clients and moving clients and soliciting clients is very different, whether it's protocol or non-protocol. So Is it harder for an advisor to move without protocol protection?
1: The short answer is yes. Protocol protection makes the transition quite a bit easier. But most of the transitions actually that I've been seeing in 2020, when I say most in excess of 50 percent, were from non-protocol firms. And I'm happy to report that those were all very successful transitions.
0: And what do you think made them successful? What does an advisor need to be aware of making a non-protocol move, be aware of that an advisor making a protocol move doesn't have to worry about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so so just to go back a little bit, the difference really between protocol and non-protocol would be that if the firm that the individual is leaving and the firm that the individual is joining are both members of the protocol for broker recruiting, that would be considered a protocol transition. And in that situation, you have very similar rules that apply except for some big differences. For instance, if it's protocol, the advisor can put together a client list, which has the client's name, address, phone number, email address, and account title, and that's called a protocol spreadsheet they can prepare the protocol spreadsheet in advance of their resignation. And at the time of their resignation, when they have joined the new firm, they can then submit the protocol spreadsheet to the new firm and ACATS and other types of solicitations can immediately go out of the new firm. So that is a big difference. In a non-protocol transition, For instance, if somebody was leaving a Morgan Stanley or UBS, they're both non-protocol firms now for about the last four years, what would happen in that situation is the financial advisor cannot take any financial information, the financial advisor cannot take any client lists or any type of similar type document like the protocol spreadsheet, must go over to the new firm. Typically, what we would do, depending on the state that the individual is in, is use what's called an announcement strategy. And that advisor would join the new firm, would off the top of their memory, would write down names of clients. Public source information would be used like Google search or white pages to locate the phone numbers of the clients. And then a simple announcement would be made to the client, which would be, I've just resigned from this firm. I've just joined this new firm. I'm calling to alert you that I'm no longer there. And then at that point, there would be discussion that would ensue. Between the financial advisor and the client, and if the client asks questions or says, I want to continue doing business with you, typically in that situation, it's okay then to get the client to transfer their book of business over. If the client says, best of luck to you, I'm not interested in anything more, at that point, then the discussion must end, and that's the end of the communication with the client. So that would be in a non-protocol transition. In a protocol transition, you can send out the solicitation package when you arrive at the new firm. You would have the client list with contact information on it. You can call the clients. And even theoretically, if the client says to you, I'm interested in staying at the prior firm, you have the right under the protocol to continue soliciting that client into the future. So there is a distinction and obviously a difference. But I'm really happy to report that most of the teams that have come from the non-protocol firms and have joined other firms, it takes a little bit more time, Mindy, for them to get their client book over and they have to prepare for more time. But it's been quite successful because of the relationships that the financial advisors have built with their clients.
0: Well, that's the key. It's about the advisor's knowledge, trust, and belief in the depth of relationship with their clients. If an advisor is not confident in the depth of relationship, then protocol or not making a move is probably not the right thing to do. I want to just highlight something you said. And, you know, look, a couple of years ago when both Morgan and UBS pulled out of protocol, I think a lot of folks certainly at those firms or thinking about moving to those firms stopped in their tracks and said, holy cow, is this the end of movement? And the reality was it actually accelerated movement, at least from where I sit, and accelerated it because the more you tell somebody not to do something, the more they want to do it. Advisors were offended by the notion that Morgan and UBS were pulling out of protocol. And so- From where I sit, here's how it worked out. A lot of advisors, they were certainly at first worried about it. You know, what does it mean to make a non protocol move? But the reality is, as you say, advisors began moving with or without it and fiercely and furiously and a lot. If they trust in the relationship with their clients, if they've got good relationship with counsel and they do things right, we haven't seen none of the moves I've facilitated. We haven't seen any TROs or any folks having real legal action.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. What I say to my financial advisors, I tell them that I'm an attorney, I'm a coach, and I'm also a counselor. And what we talk about and I tell them is, Effectively, leading up to the resignation, you cannot tell your clients that you're thinking about leaving. That's considered a pre-solicitation that violates protocol. It violates non-protocol. It violates the law in virtually every state. It's a violation of their duty of loyalty. But what I do tell the advisors, they are absolutely fine to do is build a solid relationship with your client. Make sure your client is content. Make sure your client is happy. Make sure you've done everything you can do to help that client because When you build that solid relationship with the client, the first thing the client's going to do when the client finds out that you've left is reach out to you and say, hey, what happened? Let's talk about it. And one of the things, Mindy, with the non-protocol that we've been seeing an awful lot of, if somebody, for instance, leaves Morgan Stanley and they go to another firm, when they're at the new firm, Morgan Stanley would normally hand out the book and there'd be a Morgan Stanley advisor that would be calling the former advisor's clients. What we've been seeing is because the advisors have built such a strong relationship with their clients that when someone from Morgan Stanley, a new person from Morgan Stanley calls the client, really the, the second phone call that the client is making is to the original financial advisor who is now at the new firm, effectively saying, hey, tell me what happened. So it's interesting. What I tell my clients is if you have a, a solid relationship with your doctor, with your lawyer, with your financial advisor, That is stronger than the firm that they're at, or the hospital that they're at, or the business that they're at. And you wanna follow that professional. And I tell my advisors, be confident in what you've built over the last numerous years, because you're gonna see, the clients are gonna make the right decision.
0: one of the most common questions we get asked is, so what are my biggest clients? They're my best friends. I ski with them. I dine with them. They're socially friends. And yet my attorney is telling me in a non-protocol move, in any move, I am not able to let them know that I am moving. How do the clients react to that?
1: It's actually a very difficult situation that you put yourself into because I recently had a financial advisor who had been at the firm for over 50 years and had Clients for almost 50 years, and they're best friends. They go to each other's families, weddings, and all kinds of family events. They vacation together. And the question became, how come I can't tell my best friend that I'm thinking about leaving? So, what I say is, it gets into a real slippery slope because the problem is, if you tell your best friend that you're thinking about leaving, the word can get out and the word spreads. What would be the best? practices in this type of a situation. And I realize it's difficult for financial advisors who have built a solid relationship with clients is to not tell any client that they're thinking about leaving, to not pre-solicit, not to do anything. And then what I tell the clients to do, Mindy, the financial advisors to do with their clients is when they join the new firm, what they should say to the clients is, I wish I could have called you in the past but I have certain obligations that I must comply with. I did comply with those obligations. I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell anyone that I was thinking about leaving. I hope you understand. And what I've been finding is with the financial advisors taking the initiative to broach that subject with the clients in advance, the clients don't feel that they've been left out of the secret that someone else has been told. They understand, and frankly, They want their financial advisors to play by the rules and to abide by their obligations. So it seems to work out okay, but it's still very difficult. And there's no easy way to explain how you can't tell your best friend that you're thinking about leaving, but best practices would be nobody hears about it until the move actually occurs.
0: Yeah, and I we see the same thing. I want to pivot Tom to to spend some time talking about the retirement place programs, specifically at the Wirehouse firms. So Morgan, Merrill, and UBS are using them as their best retention tool and a way to bind as many advisors to the firm as possible. What is your opinion of those programs?
1: You know, it's interesting what I'm seeing, and I'm seeing a lot of what you're seeing right now, Mindy, where a lot of financial advisors have signed these programs. These programs, depending on the circumstance, depending on the individual, may be good for that financial advisor, may not be good for that financial advisor. But I can tell you, almost in a wholesale type way, most financial advisors that sign the retirement agreements do not understand all of the obligations that are contained in those documents. So one strong piece of advice is before anyone signs a financial advisor, and it may be a benefit to that financial advisor, but before anyone signs any type of retirement agreement, they should have it reviewed by a professional. Let that professional review it and determine what the restrictions are and what the obligations and whether that person is really stuck at that firm for the rest of their career.
0: And so what are some of the typical obligations that are inherent in these agreements?
1: Well, almost all of them have certain restrictions and virtually every type of agreement. And we spoke about Merrill, UBS or Morgan Stanley would have restrictions, not only on the retiring advisor, but also restrictions on the receiving advisor team. And those restrictions would be that for a period of time, if someone accepts these accounts, that they would be restrained from leaving that firm absent certain conditions. And those conditions could be either for instance, with the Merrill Lynch agreement, payment of a certain amount of money at the time of resignation or with the UBS or Morgan Stanley agreements, just a total restriction, a total non-solicit of those accounts if indeed the receiving financial advisor moves. As far as the senior financial advisor, so this would be the retiring financial advisor, the restrictions could be something as strong as in the Merrill Lynch agreement, the CTP agreement, for instance, where it's a non-compete. And it could be a non-compete for up to two years. And what the non-compete effectively means is that individual cannot go to work in the industry for a period of two years after they depart from Merrill Lynch. And that's quite restrictive. And frankly, most financial advisors don't understand those restrictions when they sign the agreement.
0: So you and I spoke actually about that very topic for an article I was writing for wealthmanagement.com back in February. And we talked about the fact that Merrill CTP contains language that many of the others do not. And that is the non-compete language. Is that something that in fact makes it more onerous than the comparable retirement agreements at the other firms?
1: Well, it is. And it's interesting when you look at the Merrill agreement in particular, what Merrill calls it CTP agreement, client transition program. The the agreement itself is actually less restrictive on the receiving advisors because typically there's a payment term where the receiving advisors can pay a certain amount of money to Merrill and effectively be able to solicit the accounts under the protocol. But for the senior advisor, so this would be the retiring advisor, most of the retiring advisors don't understand that in the CTP document that that retiring advisor signs, There is a two-year non-compete, and that is much more restrictive than any of the other retirement agreements I've seen from any of the other broker-dealers. The other broker-dealers have restrictions, but the Merrill is a two-year non-compete. In other words, Mindy, what that means is if the senior advisor is part of this team and the team decides to make a move while the the transition payments are still being made by the receiving team, that the senior financial advisor is effectively stuck and he or she will be stuck at Merrill Lynch for a period of at least two years. So if the team departs and the senior financial advisor wants to join the team at the new firm, that senior advisor must wait at least two years and stay out of the industry completely before he or she is able to join the new firm. And if the retiring financial advisor decides that they want to not wait 2 years and join well then there's certain remedies available to Merrill Lynch including effectively clawback of money and non-payment of future monies that are due to re- retiring advisors and additional types of monetary remedies available
0: yeah. So let's be clear. You and I have talked about this. These retire in place programs are spectacular mechanisms for which a senior advisor to monetize his life's work without having to make a move and for a next-gen inheritor to inherit or buy into a book of business they wouldn't ordinarily have access to. So they're great. The issue comes in that a lot of folks have signed them without being aware, as you were saying, of the fine print. And At a time where they can't really imagine that they're going to want to leave the firm. Look, I've been with the firm 30 years, 40 years, they say, and I haven't wanted to leave. And the firm's done me well. What happens now is a lot of folks feel, and it's not an indictment of any one particular firm, it's just the agreements themselves, that they come to a place where changes continue to happen at the firm the advisors are locked up, both the senior advisor and the next-gen inheritor. They wind up with less control or agency over their professional life and are stuck for the life of the agreement or beyond.
1: Absolutely. And, And when we talk about it, we spoke a little bit about the Merrill Lynch Agreement, where oftentimes the receiving financial advisors can buy out of the restrictions, but the UBS and Morgan Stanley don't have those same types of provisions. And for the receiving advisor with a UBS retirement agreement or for the receiving advisor with a Morgan Stanley agreement, there could be certain restrictions in place, which means if they leave, they effectively have to leave that book of business and really can't do anything with that book of business. And depending on the state that they're in, may not even be able to announce to that book of business. So once again, I agree with what you're saying that most of the broker dealers use the retirement accounts as a way to keep the accounts at the firm. Sometimes it's a beneficial situation for both the senior advisor and the receiving advisor, but oftentimes there's obligations and restrictions in place that neither the senior advisor nor the receiving advisor understand when they sign the document. And then as a result, the ability to transfer is quite limited.
0: Right. So I think bottom line message is go in with your eyes wide open. It can be a wonderful mechanism. Just be really aware of what the consequences are once you sign it.
1: Absolutely.
0: So it sounds like the senior advisor really needs to be aware of the post employment restrictions that come up with the agreement. What are some things that the inheriting advisors need to be aware of that they may not be?
1: There's a lot of issues for the inheriting advisors. And really, what we would have to do, and once again, I couldn't agree more, you have to go in with your eyes open. In many situations, it's beneficial to the receiving advisors to take on the retirement accounts. It's a great way to grow your business. And in many situations, it's a great way to maybe even double your book of business in a short period of time. So I think there are some benefits to it for many, many individuals out there. However, people have to be aware of the restrictions. And it's like anything else. When you enter into this agreement, for the most part, the document that you sign benefits the firm. It gives lots of protections to the firm. And there are oftentimes some pretty severe restrictions and some severe remedies if the financial advisor breaches the agreement. And what do I mean by that? Well, it could be a one year non solicit. It could be up to a five year non solicit on the book of business. Typically, what happens is if there's a five year payment term for the accounts where the receiving advisor pays the senior advisor over a period of five years. That restriction would be in place for five years or so. If the payment term has been completed, the restrictions would be in place, which would be a non solicit for usually one year after the last payment is made. What that effectively means is that if the financial advisor is happy at the firm they're at, it works out fine. They grow their book of business, they pay for it over a period of time, and then they keep those accounts for the rest of their career. But if they're not happy, or if they're disenchanted with what's going on at the firm and they want to see what their options are, if they've signed any type of a retirement accounts agreement, they need to be prepared for what the ramifications are. And oftentimes, most financial advisors don't realize that if they're even three or four years into a retirement agreement payment, most financial advisors think that those accounts can be brought over to the new firm with them. Well, for the most part, they can't be brought over to the new firm. And it would be a situation where oftentimes you cannot even announce to those accounts and you would have to really sit back and wait for the client to affirmatively reach out to you. And that's a lot of risk that you're taking with a book of business, where if you knew about it going in before you sign the agreement, before you sign the document, you can then make a determination what's in your best interest and how do you formulate your relationship with your client, just in case you do decide to go where the first thing the client's going to do is affirmatively reach out to you. So there's ways that we can work this, Mindy. We can work out strategies where we can have the most degree of success, but it gets back to what we said. I think the best piece of advice probably that you or I could ever give our clients is keep your eyes open and know what you're getting yourself into when you sign a document.
0: Yep. Couldn't agree more. turn toward another topic, one that's a little unfortunate, but we're seeing more of, and it's causes for termination. A lot of advisors tell us that they feel more vulnerable, a sense of vulnerability than they ever did before in a zero tolerance compliance culture. And one of the things I think that's interesting that's really changed is that the bigger an advisor was, the more he produced, the more assets she managed, the more protected they were, should there be an infraction. And oftentimes, the bigger they were, the more it might either just be a warning or something of the sort. But today, in a zero tolerance compliance culture, it feels even the bigger they are, the more vulnerable they are. So Help us to understand, first of all, how vulnerable are advisors really? And what are the potential landmines that they should be aware of?
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, here's the issue. And I I think 2020 has been an interesting year because a lot of people have worked from home. And a lot of people have not obviously had the day-to-day interaction with the management team or with the compliance team that they would have in the normal office. We are seeing an avalanche of financial advisors, um, effectively charged with certain internal acts, violation of company policy, violation of certain regs, certain compliance initiatives, where those financial advisors who have really an unblemished record are now being brought up internally. And in many situations we've seen over the last 12 to 16 months have actually lost their job. And it's really very unfortunate because where in the past we were seeing the firms the the UBSs and the Morgan Stanleys of the world which were much more financial advisor centric much more understanding and working with the financial advisors when mistakes happened where now what we're seeing the firms doing is really having no tolerance not even putting together for instance a letter of education or a letter of admonishment which would be typically done where an advisor does something that he or she should not have done. And we're not talking, Mindy, about a financial advisor taking money from a client. We're talking about really violations of internal company policies that you or I would look at and say, you know, it's good to learn from that experience, but that should not be a terminable offense. What we're seeing now is that these firms are terminating individuals. And as a result of that, And I think that has also led to why many financial advisors in 2020 are looking around, keeping their eyes open and looking at if there's other platforms available, because frankly, what they're deciding is that these firms that would be sticking by them in the past are not doing so anymore. And if a financial advisor gets terminated, it turns into a a U5 issue. And it also turns into a transportability of their book issue because no firm will want to hire terminated financial advisor until the U5 gets filed which could be up to 30 days to make sure the U5 is something that can be effectively worked through because there's a good chance if the U5 is negative that FINRA enforcement is going to ask questions and ask for follow-up on that and to also to make sure that the clients will be coming over even though there's this two three four week gap between the day that financial advisor has been terminated And the day, potentially, they could be hired by the new firm. So there is a lot of minefields out there for financial advisors. And I think as a result of that, financial advisors are saying, you know what, we think we want to look around a little bit because we don't like what this firm has done to some of our other financial advisor friends where they've terminated them for what would seem to be a fairly innocuous reason.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and we see the same. And what's interesting is where folks are going when they feel that sense of vulnerability. And a couple of points. One is that many of them are looking, not because they themselves did something wrong and are looking over their shoulder and waiting to be terminated, but as you say, because they watch respected colleagues and say, what they did is not that different than what I've thought about doing, and if they're vulnerable, so am I. What's also interesting is where these folks are going. So on the one hand, if someone is feeling vulnerable at UBS, many of them are as likely to go to Morgan Stanley, which is a place where they're not necessarily any more or less vulnerable. It's just making a change. But it is often making folks look away from the wirehouse world, the traditional space, and move more toward either full-on independence or some version of independence. Why do you think that is?
1: It's interesting. I'm seeing the same thing where, after a while, a lot of the financial advisors who built up significant books of business have decided that they want freedom and flexibility. They're not going to continue with the freedom and flexibility in the Morgan Stanleys or the UBSs of the world. So they're looking at independent platforms. Independent platforms, they can basically run their own business. They can run their own business as they see fit, bring their clients over, but most importantly, not wait for effectively some problem to occur. And I've seen financial advisors that I've assisted in the past that have been at firms for decades and have had perfect records where now all of a sudden there'll be some type of a complaint of some sort. There'll be an internal investigation. The financial advisor is in disbelief that he or she is effectively being cross-examined by their internal compliance people over something that would you and I would think would be really innocuous obviously not client related or no client harm and as a result the next thing these individuals know is that they're they're being terminated it happens time and time again so as a result a lot of financial advisors want to take control of their own destiny of their own future and they go independent
0: Yep. And if an advisor is terminated, so if he or she is terminated from, let's say, UBS, how likely is he or she to find a job once terminated at Morgan Stanley, at Merrill Lynch, at another major brokerage firm?
1: Typically, it's difficult. And typically, what the firm wants to see that is looking to hire this potential person who's been terminated is what's the U5 going to say? You know, We were just talking about a situation where somebody's been terminated at UBS. Let's assume that UBS terminates a financial advisor, and that financial advisor is talking to the Merrills of the world, for instance. Well, Merrill's going to want to know what is the U5 going to look like. So oftentimes the firm that has just terminated the employee working with a professional may give draft U5 language to determine, okay, this is going to be the scope of what the U5 is going to look like to allow that financial advisor to talk to Merrill. And to see if Merrill's interested, still based upon the U5. But it's very difficult, Mindy. And I have to tell you, in this type of a situation, if somebody is going to get terminated, if somebody believes they're going to be terminated, once again, I think it, it would behoove them to speak to a professional to make a determination whether or not they should resign effective immediately or should continue the process along. If they resign immediately, it doesn't necessarily negate what the U5 may say, but it may be easier to find a job. And in addition, if there's a problem that is occurring over a period of time, I think it's better for advisors to really look around to make a determination, should we leave the firm now, let's call it in weeks in advance of this investigation continuing on, because we're not confident that our manager, we're not confident that the firm is going to support us. And what I've been hearing a lot of financial advisors saying right now is the managers at the UBSs and the Morgan Stanley's of the world are under a lot of pressure also. And so in the past, where the manager might effectively stake their reputation on a financial advisor and really help that financial advisor, we're seeing less and less of that. And unfortunately, what the managers are saying now is that, sorry, there's not much I can do for you. Corporate has already made the decision.
0: Yeah, we see the same. I traffic in plan Bs, but I am the biggest believer that every advisor should always have a plan B, not because they necessarily are going to use it, not because they're going to need it, not because I think every advisor should move, but especially because the world has changed and the, the waterfall of possibilities has expanded. There's a lot of reasons, including a more hypervigilant compliance culture that advisors should always be one step ahead. So we could go on for days, lots to talk about, but any other bits of wisdom you can share with prospective movers, Tom?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think that there really has been no better time than now for financial advisors to see what's out there. And, you know, as we were talking about, there's a lot of teams that I actually talk to, Mindy, and I'll represent for a period of time. And they'll go out there and determine what the options are, what the different platforms are. They'll see what their restrictions are with the ability to move over to a new firm, and then they'll make a determination what's in their client's best interest and what's in their best interest. Many teams will go down the path and make a decision that they're content with where they are, but it's interesting because many teams, when they start talking to the competition, realize what they've been missing in the past, how they believe that that platform would be better for their clients. Maybe it would be better for them. And obviously, it could be financially more rewarding for them. So it really opens up their eyes quite a bit at what's out there. I don't think there's ever been a better time for financial advisors to look around than right now. I think that firms are looking to increase assets. Firms are putting together some pretty significant incentives for teams to come over. I think firms are working quite well with with teams, both large and small, and their support staff to make a smooth transition over. I think the law has been helpful in a lot of respects. COVID-19 has been helpful in certain respects to allow teams to maneuver to different firms and, once again, to allow the clients then to transition their accounts over. So I'm actually very optimistic on what the future brings. I think that financial advisors who have a strong book of business really have a wealth of opportunities available to them. They could either stay at the firm they're at. If they're happy, they could look around and see what the competition is offering to them. They could go to another broker dealer. They can go to an independent platform. Really, the key is if the financial advisor has a solid relationship with his or her accounts and a solid book of business, the world is really full of opportunities for them.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well said. Tom, I thank you so very much for your time, for your perspective, for your generosity, and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation.
1: Mindy, thank you, and I appreciate your professionalism also.
0: In a much changed wealth management world, having access to advice like Tom shared is priceless. But I think what was most universally relevant was that there's never been a better time for advisors as opportunities abound. Regardless, advisors should always be vigilant and play by the rules. Operating with your eyes wide open will help keep problems at bay and also enable you to be available to opportunities as they present themselves. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly emails, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles these written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached by cell at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave us a star rating and a review. That will let other advisors know if it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.